Well, so this morning, um, Pastor Mark was supposed to be the one preaching, but uh, he ended up in the hospital last week. I mean, he's with us still, as you can see, but he ended up in the hospital last week with kidney stones, and uh, so he, he came here, but uh, he couldn't hobble his way up here to preach this morning, so uh, make sure you're praying for him. There's, there's been a lot going on. My whole family, they were sick for like the past two weeks. First time, Carmi's finally back. Um, Lucas is finally doing better, so it's uh, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to be together in family. I was, uh, whenever Angel was talking about the importance of of sacred community, and especially things like in those moments of absolute need, those those emergency moments. And when she mentioned sometimes someone like Dr. Shelley just wakes up and has a dream about you in the middle of the night, those moments can change your life. I remember whenever I was first living in Turkey, this is back in 2003, uh, I'd only been there for a few months, and in the, I was brand new to hearing from God. I was brand new to, I was, I was brand new to a lot of things in the faith back then. Uh, I didn't know that God could wake you up and talk to you. And I, I woke up in the middle of the night, it was about one in the morning, and all I heard God was say, all I heard God say was, was pray. And I had no idea. It was so clear. And I just, so I started praying and praying. I didn't know. Within five minutes, I get a text from our team leader. I was on a team of six people in Turkey, um, in Istanbul. And he said, I need you. And this is one in the morning. He had no idea if I was awake or not. And he said, I need you to come up. We lived in the same apartment building. I was on floor three. He was on floor six. He said, I need you to come up here right now. And so I jump up. And I get in the elevator, I go straight up to the sixth floor. And when I get to the sixth floor, the rest of my team was at the door too. They had all been awakened by God at the same time and had all come over. And uh, we get in there and I won't tell the whole story because it'd take a long time, but there was a extremely demonic attack that happened. And my leader, his, his sister walked in, she had this, she was not a believer and so she was... Um, not in control of herself, and she walked in the room. She had been out at a bar, walked in the room at one in the morning. My, my team leader, he was up praying, and she walked into the room, and whenever the presence of God hit the dark stuff in her, she manifested and ran to the window and threw it open and tried to throw herself out uh, because she couldn't handle the presence of God. And so he grabbed her by the legs and dragged her back in and was holding her down uh, as he was texting us. And so we, it was one of the crazy experiences of my, ever, my life I ever had. I can tell you the story afterwards if you want, but uh, we were there all night casting demons out of this girl. And by the morning, I, I understood what the Bible is talking about. Whenever the Bible says, like whenever the man who is possessed by legion and the Bible says that his countenance changed, that's a real thing. Like, They can physically look like the same person, but they look entirely different. They look like a completely different person. It's the the oddest thing you'll ever see. And that was her. That by morning time, she looked like a completely different person. And she was a completely different person. She got saved, of course, right after that you get saved. She got saved, came to Jesus, and now she's been in ministry for the past 20 years. And so it was was amazing. But it's those moments, if, if you're not walking with the Lord, you miss out on a lot of those moments of God just giving you an opportunity to go to war and to win 
and to see these amazing, life-changing, it was a life-changing moment for me as well as for her because I'd never seen anything like that in my life. So um, I want to transition here. That wasn't part of my sermon. I just want, uh, that just came to mind whenever Angel said that. So in the 1850s, uh, there about 400,000 people, they, over the course of about four years, they gathered together in a place called Independence, Missouri. And they traveled by wagon, covered wagons, and on foot, 2,170 miles to Oregon. It's called the Oregon Trail. And these 400,000 people, they sold their businesses. They had left their family. Back then, there was, once you left, you were gone. You were probably never going to see your family again because it's, it's a six-month trip to get there through treacherous terrain, dangerous on every level. But these 400,000 people, they sold their businesses. They left their families. They left their houses or gave them away or sold them to scrape together every penny that they could to buy the covered wagons that they needed and the supplies that they needed to make this six-month journey. And they would take their kids and they would take their children, uh, sorry, they would take their children, they would take their wives, and they would put them in these little four-foot wagons. They weren't huge. They were like four feet long. And most of them, they would have to sleep all crammed together on the bottom of the wagon with all of their, their goods around them. And they would bring their animals with them. And there were millions of animals that traveled with them. Millions and millions along with the 400,000 people. And they took this journey and it was so deadly. A lot of you have played the Oregon Trail game, right? Like, oh, Tammy died of dysentery. You know, that kind of stuff. Well, you know, we laugh about it now, but there were real people living that. And people were dying so fast that um, in some areas, some sections of the caravan, because it was one long caravan that went on, for about four years. There were sections of that caravan, there were times when only one in five people survived. The others would die. And it, was, it would happen so fast from, from cholera outbreaks, a lot of it, where they would literally go to bed and wake up in the morning and the parents would just be dead. It would hit them so fast and just kill them because a lot of them were really severely malnourished because they had nothing. They had to forage for food on the way. They had a lot of meat because they had lots of animals and there were buffalo everywhere. They could kill buffalo the whole way. That's why there are almost no buffalo now because they were wiping them out as they were going to survive. But pretty much every single person who traveled on the Oregon Trail lost someone, lost their spouse, their children. If the, the cholera outbreaks didn't kill them, whenever they would cross rivers, a lot of them didn't realize how dangerous the rivers were. And they were so creative Those old pioneers were incredibly, amazingly creative people. They would get to these rivers and realize, if we try to cross this in our wagons, we're all going to die. Because these were raging rivers. These are not like little streams. These were rivers that will kill you. And so these guys, they would take their um, their little vessels and they would convert them into little boats. And they would float across the rivers and they would have their ox pull them across. And even then, a lot of them, the wagons would just get swept away and whole families would just be killed, just dragged away, never to be seen again. And if they were to be separated from the caravan, it was, this, this caravan was one, sometimes two lines. That was it, of these white wagons. And you could look down. They said if you would get on a hilltop, you could just see for miles, just white top, just a row of white wagons. 
And there were so many millions of animals and people moving along the Oregon Trail that the rut that they created, the road that was pounded down was so deep. There were places it was four feet deep. And whenever they went through it, they could only see the tops of the wagons because it was so deep. There were so many people. And they would make this this journey, and this was unexplored land. There was nothing there. Lewis and Clark had done a little exploratory thing, but these were uncharted waters. They didn't know what they were going to find. And as they would, they would come across a plane, and it would be this amazing, they would think, we're free, we're finally out of the hard stuff. And then all of a sudden, they would find themselves face to face with a forest that had trees that were we, we almost wouldn't believe how big these trees were. There are pictures of them. They, they would have 20, 30 guys link arms around one tree. And they were so massive that, and there would be forests of them. And the pioneers, they couldn't get their wagons over them because the roots were so huge, the wagons couldn't cross over them. So again, in their creativity, they would dig trenches so that the wagons could go underneath the roots. And so hundreds of thousands of people would go. They would just go under these roots. And as they would go, people were dying. And because they couldn't stop, even as, even as parents and children were dying, they couldn't stop the journey. Because if they stopped the journey, these cholera outbreaks would just overtake them. So they had to keep moving. And they would jump out with the bodies of their family members. And they would bury them as fast as they could so they didn't lose the, the caravan. And then they would have to, they would put a makeshift cross in the ground, couldn't mark it beyond that or anything, and they would have to jump back on the wagon and keep going, knowing that every single year of the four years that this went on, every year they would, the, the trail would be lined with crosses of all the people who died. But all the animals, the herds, the, the ox, the buffaloes, their cows, everything that they had, there were so many of them that they would just trample all of these graves and the bodies would just be obliterated. And so they knew they would never see that family member again, not just because they were dead, but they would never be able to find that body or the cross or anything. It was gone forever. To this day, there are tens of thousands of bodies of bones on the Oregon Trail that will never be identified. And it was, it was in these moments where all of a the sudden they would be faced with incredible danger that the countless stories of amazing heroism would happen. Like we may read stories sometimes about like one, one person, one woman, one guy who did some really brave and, and dangerous things. This was hundreds of thousands of people every day risking their lives in incredibly intense ways. There's one story, there was this one family, they got separated from the caravan, which is, was usually certain death if you got separated. You were never gonna find them again. They got lost in this forest, and as they're journeying through this forest, and they're, ter- they're all scared, they're terrified, because they can't find the caravan. So they're moving through this forest, they're completely lost, they had two wagons with them, and it was a wife and, and uh, two or three kids. They're pushing the wagons, they have ox that are helping too, they have, they're pushing the wagons up this mountainside, hoping that if they get to the top, they'll be able to see the caravan. As they come up to what they think is the top, all of the sudden, there's a, they break out of the trees and there's just a sheer cliff in front of them. And it was so sudden and so unexpected that the first wagon fell off the cliff. There was nobody in it, but it was a lot of their belongings. Fell off the cliff and just shattered into pieces at the bottom. 
So the family is standing there looking down at this cliff. They just lost their wagon. That's a huge loss for them. They have one wagon left with all the rest, whatever's left of what they own on there. They have all their herds behind them, the few animals that they had with them. And they can see the caravan, the Oregon Trail, the pioneers, they can see them. But the problem is they're that way at the bottom of the cliff. They can't go back because they know once they go back into that forest, they're just going to get lost again. They're going to get turned around again. So now they know the only way they can go is forward. So they pull out, they, have, they find rope in the one wagon that's left and they tie it onto a tree and they lower it down and it doesn't go down far enough. They have to find a way for the parents and their little kids to get down. So they go and they kill two cows and they skin the cows and they, they uh, cut the, the skin into strips and tie them together and tie that to the rope. And they all, one by one, climb down this rope to get to the bottom. They had to leave everything behind. Wagons, clothing, food, everything they had. They abandoned it to be able to get back to the caravan and live and hopefully find someone who will help them. A lot of, we don't talk a lot, if you've read about the Oregon Trail, you never hear about the amount of beggars and homeless people that were on the Oregon Trail because they lost everything and they would have to find someone to take care of them as they traveled. And this family, they made it out. They actually made it back and they made it to, to Oregon and it worked out for them. There was another family. It was a, a woman and she had three children. It was a 10-year-old boy and two little girls. One was about seven, the other was an infant, still nursing. And they were playing in the forest. They had, the caravan had got to a river and had to cross the river. And it took time to prepare the wagons to go. It could take hours. So she and the, the kids, they were out playing in the woods, just waiting. A few hours go by, they come back, and the caravan was gone. They had crossed and forgot about them, didn't realize that they were out in the woods. Because these huge caravans, there's so many people, they can't keep track of where everyone is. And so all of a sudden, this mother and her three children are on the wrong side of the river, and the caravan has crossed, and they're gone. They can't see them anymore. And they're in this, it's certain death. It is, they are going to die if they don't get across that river. There's no way they're going to survive. And so there's only one way to get across the river, and there is a fallen tree that's floating in the river. But the river is so violent that this tree, even though it's hanging on by the roots, is swaying back and forth. At any moment, it could break off, and if anyone's near it, they're going to get swept away. So the mother starts having a panic attack, realizing she'll never make it across. She, just looking at it makes her dizzy. She knows that, that's it. We, we're lost. And she's looking at this. She, st- she tries to stand on it. She puts her foot on it, and she just keeps saying, I'm too dizzy. I'm too dizzy. I'll, I can't make it. And her 10-year-old little son, he walks up and essentially says, don't worry, mama, I got this. And he grabs his seven-year-old little sister by the hand and steps on the log and carefully guides her across it and makes it to the other side. He leaves his seven-year-old sister there. He walks back across, takes his infant sister, and then walks her across too and gives her to the seven-year-old. And mama is still on the other side crying because she can't make it. She's not gonna be able to walk across that log. So the 10-year-old boy He's already risked his life several times. 
he walks back across this log that's just swaying back and forth, swaying back and forth. He walks back across and he says, come on, mama, we have to go. She says, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm too dizzy. I'll fall off. And she says, don't worry, mama. He, he says, just put your hands on my shoulder and close your eyes and just follow my steps. I'll take you across. So she, she does. She grabs his shoulders. He starts walking across. They make it about halfway across the log and her foot slips. And she lets go of his shoulders and she starts to fall backwards. And her words were, oh no, I'm dead. And she falls into the, this raging river. And she should have died. But her son dove into the water, grabbed her by the hand and grabbed onto a tree branch with the other hand. And his little 10-year-old strength, he dragged his mother back to shore on the other side with his children, with her children. And they survived and they got back to the trail. They got back to the caravan. Those are just two of literally tens of thousands of stories that took place among these pioneers. They risked their life, lost their lives, lost everything over and over and over again. And the question is, why? Why would they suffer so much? Why would they risk cholera? Why would they risk, even if they made it to Oregon, there were Native Americans that were, at that point, the war with the Native Americans in that area had started because the U.S. government was starting to establish forts in the area and it was causing all kinds of strife between the United States government and the indigenous people. And so when the, the settlers would arrive, when the pioneers would arrive in that area, even though they had nothing to do with that, they would find themselves in the middle of all of these battles. And oftentimes they would arrive thinking they were gonna start a new life, but instead they would have to go move into the, the forts, the military forts just to survive. And so they would live there for years in these crammed little bunkers because it was the only safe place for them to be. And so they would go thinking they were gonna have prosperity and instead they would have more poverty, more suffering, more death. So why would they do that? They essentially did it on a rumor, basically. This was completely unknown territory. And the US government had sent soldiers there and they wanted to populate the area. They wanted to take the area from the, from the Native Americans. They needed, they needed people there to do that. And so the government sent out an announcement. And they said, any person over the age of 18, if you will travel to Oregon, if you will risk everything and come to Oregon, we will give you 320 acres of land for free. And after that, it's $1.25 for each acre after if you want more which $1.25 back then was a lot of money. It was like $18,000, something like that. And if you're a married couple that was, that was married before 19, uh, 1850, you got double. You got 640 acres of land. So that's a lot of land. And the government was telling them, oh, this is incredibly prosperous. The land is fertile. You come here. There's rivers everywhere. You come here. You will be so rich. Your crops will never stop. They'll grow double what they ever grew over in, in Missouri or New York or New Jersey or the other places where they had already established. In those places, there were already big businesses established. They were already, they were already the millionaires. So all the poor people who didn't really have an opportunity there, they saw Oregon as this is a new start for us. We can go, we can have more land than we'll ever need. 
We'll be able to grow huge crops and we'll be millionaires too. And they also heard about mines. The gold rush happened in California roughly the same time, but a lot of people haven't heard that there was a gold rush in, uh, I believe it was Washington State. There were mountains that they found that were full of gold and precious jewels and precious metals. Um, But that one didn't become a gold rush because the mountains were so difficult to get to that almost everyone who went died. So a lot of these pioneers would travel, they would get to Oregon, and they would survive this long journey and think, okay, now I'm here, now I'm going to go to the mines and find gold, and they would just die in the mines, die on the mountainsides, they just fall off. So let's, my question is this, would you take that risk? Now, nowadays, we live in, the mindset is different. So let's modernize this. What if, um, whatever that, uh, Bezos, whatever that guy's name is who owns Amazon, what if he sent out a message to everyone, everyone in the United States, says, I will give you $1 billion. I will give anyone $1 billion if you will take everything, sell everything you have, give up everything you own, and travel, from, drive from here, from Dubois, wherever you're at, all the way down to Argentina. That's all you got to do. Just drive there. But you have to take the most dangerous route. You have to travel across Juarez, Mexico, where the cartels are frequently kidnapping and killing Americans. You got to make your way through southern Mexico and Chiapas, where they not only kill, Christ, they not only kill um, foreigners, but they kill Christians and torture them regularly. If you survive that, you got to go through northern Guatemala, where there are bands of raiders traveling around with AK-47s and black masks just looking for someone to kidnap and hold for ransom. If you make it through northern Guatemala, you got to keep going. you got to make it through Panama, which Panama, I mean, we were just there. Panama is very safe until you get to the border of Colombia. Get to the border of Colombia and you got the FARC. They are a rebel group that are so well organized. They have countless hostages right now. They're so well organized that they kidnapped a French presidential candidate named Ingrid. I don't remember what her last name is, but her name was Ingrid. Let's see if I can find her name here right quick for you. Uh, Ingrid Betancourt. They kidnapped her. She is a presidential candidate for France. They kidnapped her when she visited Colombia and held her and tortured her for six years. And nobody could figure out how to get her out of there. She lived in a six by four cage for six years with two guards holding guns at her 24 hours a day. She had nothing but a hole in the ground for a bathroom and a mosquito net to sleep under. And they would constantly, it it must have been like being in hell, at least to a certain extent, because they constantly tormented her. Being a woman, she was, she said, brutalized many times. They would bring, they would gather um, giant snakes out of the rivers and bring them just to scare her while she, just, to, just for fun. Just, they tormented her constantly. She was eventually rescued, but it was six years before she was out. And it just keeps going. You have to go through all these territories and take your, your children, take your spouse with you. If you make it, you get a billion dollars. Would you take that risk? You may, I know we're all weighing this, right? Even as I was writing this, I was like, would I do that? Because we're weighing the risk, right? Because there are pros. 
I mean, if you make it, you're set for life. I mean, your whole family's set for life. Your kids are set, your grandkids are set for life. But the odds of you making it, like the Oregon Trail, one in five died. And almost everyone lost someone. You're likely to lose at least one person from your family if you go. And 400,000 people said yes to that. And they went and they did it. Well, at least a portion of them did. For the Oregon Trail pioneers, they went on a rumor. They went hoping that the land would be fertile. They went hoping that things would be good on the other side. A lot of them, it wasn't. A lot of them, they ended up in poverty. They still remained impoverished. They got there. They lived through war. It was, there was no 100% guarantee of anything. But for many of you, well, not many of you, all of us here, we have a 100% guarantee of the kingdom of heaven if we're following Jesus. Amen. We have a 100% guarantee We have promises that never break. We have promises that never bend. We have God who never changes. We have the king of kings on our side. And yet, and I know a lot of you already know where I'm going with this. Most of us will sacrifice nothing for that. We won't sacrifice a thing. Most people aren't willing just to get to church is a huge sacrifice for them. For eternal life, for eternal rewards, And yet there are people who have given up everything for a rumor. But we're here knowing we have the word of God in our hand. We have it right there. We can, salvation is free, but there's more. There's more. There's revival. There's the power of God. There's miracles. There's, There's all kinds of things. And the question is, what are we willing to give to get that? How far are we willing to go? Because 100 years ago, 150, however long it was, math is not my thing, however long ago it was the Oregon Trail happened, there were people for money giving up their children for money. There's a man, we're spiritually on a road, one way or another. You're on a spiritual Oregon Trail right now. You are. You're going on a road and it's going somewhere. You're either going for the big prize, you're going for Jesus or you're going for the rivers. You're going for cholera, you're going for death. It is a treacherous road and we're all on it in one way or another. There's a man I grew up with. uh, I mean, he was an adult when I was a kid. His name was Ron. And Ron, uh, he was my neighbor's dad. So you guys know that guy, right? Like the neighbor's dad. You know, I, I used to go fishing with my, I lived, I grew up on the lake in Texas and I used to go fishing with my friend almost every day, really, because I was homeschooled. So I just spent my, my um, early mornings, we'd go fishing and then I'd go home and do school. And he was homeschooled too. So we would, we would all fish together every day. And um, Ron was married to a very strong Christian woman. And uh, her name was Dale. And Dale loved Jesus and Ron hated Jesus. And he was an atheist. He hated God. And he hated his wife because she loved Jesus. And he was always bitter and angry at her. And it was constant tension in the house. And she would go to church and she'd take the kids to church. And Ron would get more and more bitter about it. So much so that he finally got to a point where he decided that he would make it his life mission to destroy his wife and his children's faith. 
And so he uh, would study all these really famous um, atheists and evolutionists and all these, all these people who write all these stupid books that they write and feel so smart about. And he would um, study them and just argue with his wife and his kids all the time. And it got to the point where he would go to church just to argue and debate with the leaders there to try and convince them how wrong they were. And as the years went by, because they were married the whole, my whole childhood, they stayed married and um, they were always fighting. It got worse and worse and worse. He got angrier and angrier and angrier. And it got to the point where he was throwing things in the house and it just got, it got violent. And it got to the point where um, he succeeded. He destroyed his family. He convinced his son who, like I said, I grew up with, his son who laid hands on somebody with a broken leg and the bones came together in his hands. He managed to convince his son that that never happened and that it was just a coincidence. That's what atheists like to talk about coincidences all the time. He convinced his son that that was just all in his head, that that never really happened. His daughter, she continued to believe in Jesus, but she didn't want anything to do with her family anymore because it was so bad and she moved away and didn't want anything to do with them anymore. And then his wife eventually divorced him because it was just too, it was too bad in the house. It was too abusive. She divorced him and moved on. And he ended up alone with nothing. So in his mind, because the Bible says that the heart is the most deceitful thing above all. It's the thing that, it's foolishness. Today, it is absolute foolishness. People who talk about, I'm going to live my truth. Your truth is a lie. It is a lie. Your heart, if you are following your heart, you are following a path to destruction. You have to follow truth, not your heart. And so he decided, you know, oh, I'm free now. So he decided he was going to move to Taiwan. And he's going to go to Taiwan. He's going to be an English teacher. And while he'll teach English during the mornings and at night, he'll spend all of his time on social media looking for people who preach the gospel to attack them. His whole life's goal was to destroy. He was an antichrist. He was out to destroy Christianity. About a week ago, uh, Ron had a stroke and died in his sleep. And he died alone by himself in Taiwan in the middle of the night. And he was so disconnected that his family didn't even know he had died. His kids didn't even know he had died for days and days after it happened. And Ron right now is in hell, which I know nobody likes to hear that. Because we always like to think, everyone. whenever someone dies, people always talk about, oh, they were such sweet. They always look for something good to say. But Ron was an evil man who hated Jesus. Of course, there is the possibility that at the last second, he repented and got in by the skin of his teeth. But that's probably not true. He probably died the way he lived. Angry, bitter, hating God. I say that because a lot of you in here are also God-haters. And I know that. I'm not guessing that. I know that. You want to know why I know that? It's not just because I'm looking at you. It's because I clean this church. I clean this church and I find the hateful little notes you write on the envelopes and the little vulgar things you write in there and leave them in the Bibles for other people to find. I'm the one who finds those and the other people who clean this church. And you're in here in this church right now. There are people listening right now. To those of you who believe, I just want you to listen 
There are people sitting right next to you right now who hate Jesus and pretend that they like him. But they're leaving little notes in the Bibles and they're, leaving, they're writing little hateful things. You're full of bitterness. You're full of hate. You're on the same road as Ron right now. You're on a trail. You're on a bumpy, angry, bitter trail. But you need sacred community and you need Jesus. We need each other. We find hope. We find life in each other. You know, we talk about the other side of the fence, the people who hate Jesus and people who are bitter and they still, they come to church because they like to feel uh, as if they can be angry and hateful everybody else, but they can come to church and still get saved. The devil also comes to church, so there's not much hope there. You have to actually repent. You actually have to live for Jesus. Sitting in a chair is not doing anything for you. But I want to talk to those of you who love Jesus here because we're also on a trail. We're also on a road to somewhere. And we're not like the pioneers of the Oregon Trail who were going not knowing what they were going to find, not knowing what was before them. Jesus has given us some pretty amazing details. And I want to read a couple verses to you here, to you pilgrims. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, it says, But as it is this, they desire a better country. That's us. We desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared for them a city. So that's for you. God has prepared a city for you who love Jesus in this room. Then we're going to jump to Revelation chapter 1. Chapter 21, sorry. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. They had vanished. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, this is for us. We're supposed to see. The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will live among them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you know why there are tears in heaven? Ever wonder that? Because the tears are being wiped away after they're in heaven. They didn't show up at heaven and were like, huzzah, we're here. They showed up with tears. And God had to wipe away those tears in heaven. I believe it's because we're all going to have people in our wagon who don't make it. And we're going to get there. And the first thing we're going to do is, where is this person? And they're not there. And there will be tears in heaven until God wipes them away. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be sorrow and anguish or crying or pain for the former order of things has passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Write these words for they are faithful and true. They're accurate, incorruptible and trustworthy. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the one who thirsts, I will give water from the fountain of the water of life without cost. That's us. He who overcomes, and I'm going to, this is the Amplified, it says, who overcomes the world by adhering faithfully to Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior will inherit these things. 
and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowards and the unbelieving and the abominable who are devoid of character and personal integrity and practice and tolerate immorality, the murderers, the sorcerers who, who use intoxicating drugs, the idolaters and the cultists who practice and teach false religions, and all the liars who knowingly deceive and twist the truth, therefore, their part will be in the lake that blazes with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Pioneers, pilgrims, we want more than just Sunday morning Christianity. We want to go beyond that. God wants to move and he wants to move in your life. God, we need to be set on fire. This is something that has... This is something that has been in my heart for a few months now, and I know I'm coming out hot with this teaching. I don't usually go so strong, but the reason why I'm doing that, it's on purpose this morning, it's because we need to change. We need to get stirred up. We need to realize, we need to realize what's at stake here. People's souls are at stake here. Our nation is at stake here. We need a change. We need to see a difference. And the only way that happens is us. It isn't politics. It isn't the government. It's us. We have to change. There was um, Charles Finney. He used to, to preach uh, systematic revival. And I won't go into it right now, but the whole thing, what basically Charles Finney believed that you could predict where God was gonna move. Not because we control God in any way, but because the people would start seeking God. The Holy Spirit would stir people up to start seeking him. And so you could see, oh, this is where God's about to move right now. And I want that to be us. I don't want us to just keep going on with the same thing. I want us to see real change. I want our families to make it to the end with us. I have family members that are not believers. I want them to make it to the end with us. We have to stop playing church. I woke up in the middle of the night. I had this. It's, this hasn't happened to me in a very long time. But on Thursday night, I woke up just out of nowhere. And I had this word. And the word, it's hard for me to explain. Some of you, you understand what I'm talking about. You, when you receive something from the Spirit, it's really hard to explain it sometimes. It's amazing how God will say something to you. And it's like three words when you hear it. But to try and explain what that means is so much more difficult. And essentially it was this. We talk about how love is a choice. Like anyone who's been married or been in a long-term relationship, you know love is a choice, right? I mean, there, we all get in arguments with our spouses and there's a moment where you don't, really, you don't really like them, but you still choose to love them, right? You still love them. And that's because there's something that goes beyond the emotions. There's commitment. That's why marriage is important. That's why living together is not as, a, as good as marriage because marriage involves commitment. It involves making covenants with each other. If you don't make a covenant with each other, then you're, you're not living what God has for you, which is so much better. Covenants are, are so important. So anyway, whenever you have a, a, a marriage based on covenants and love and like real love and all this other stuff, you suddenly realize like, love is not a feeling. I love my wife. We've been married for a bazillion years now. And I, and I know some of you are going to be like, whenever you hear this. But, you know, when I, not every day when I look at it, I'm like, oh. It's just, you know, some days, like, we're just living together. You know, like, we're going about it. You all know what I'm talking about. Don't act like I'm not telling the truth. 
There are days when you just wake up and you're just sort of living your lives together, but you still love each other. You're committed to each other. And uh, the, the word that I got was, just like love is a decision, love is a choice, so is hate. Most of us have this idea that love is something we choose to do, but hate is this uncontrollable emotion. But that is just not the truth. Hate is just as much a decision as anything else. And I bring that up because as we're walking on this trail, I have this this, um, little piece of paper that this missionary in Panama gave me that I've kept as like my Bible bookmark. Um, It's it's huge. It's way too big for a bookmark, but that's what I use it for. And uh, it says this. It's a Bible verse, and it says, choose this day whom you will serve. And as we walk on this trail, I have this, this same thing to say to you today. Choose this day whom you will serve. We're all on the trail together. On the Oregon Trail, they couldn't survive if they got separated from each other. You can't. Can't make it. Spiritually, you won't. You will eventually get dragged off somewhere else. And we need each other. We need to walk with each other. And you have to choose this day who you will serve. Will you serve Jesus? Will you stay... We have to choose. We're talking about the awe of God right now. We have to choose the awe of God. Awe is not a feeling. It it can't. It becomes a feeling because your emotions will follow your decisions. It's like, you know, nobody, unless you've been doing it for a while, let me just, let me put it this way. Nobody who is out of shape likes working out, Right. right? But if you start doing it, and you do it, and you do it, and you do it for a long, long time, all of a sudden, you, like, you love it over time. It's, it becomes something you love. Like, I remember whenever my mom started drinking, like, healthy stuff, like, the, like all the weird vitamin, you know, the, like the, oh, what's that one thing? I'm pretty sure it's illegal. Um, <laughs> what's, oh, man, uh, oh, no, I'm sure some of you probably drink it. Uh, no, not matcha. Uh, no, it's the kratom, kratom. So my mom started drinking kratom. And she, she throws up like every morning because she drinks it and it's so disgusting. She can't handle it, but she can't live without it. Like she's fully addicted to it. And you know, that's whenever we make choices, when we choose to walk in the awe of God, it is a choice. A lot of you, you come in here and this is not a criticism. I get it, right? A lot of you, you come in here and, you, and I've heard you, you've, you told me this and I'm not, again, this is not a criticism or a rebuke of any kind. We all understand this. You, wet, you come into church, you don't feel anything. Like everyone else seems like they're like, you know, angels prophesying and, you know, Leanne's praying for the sick and they're like, I'm healed. And then you're like, I, I don't know. I was thinking about the football game. I, don't feel any, I didn't feel anything or hear anything. And we need to understand that you have to make the decision to engage. You have to make the decision to actively engage in what's going on in the spirit. And when you actively engage your emotions and your spirit, then follow that. Nobody feels like your flesh never feels like getting up and praying for an hour. Like you, in the beginning, you don't. Because it's like, oh, okay, let's do this. Listen to the same five worship songs again. And let's do this, this pray this, you know, the thing and read the Bible again. And your flesh doesn't like that because your flesh is always against God. I mean, the Bible is very clear about that. Like, our flesh is at war with the things of the Spirit. That is a real thing. So you have to learn to ignore your flesh. And then you live by the Spirit, ignoring your flesh. And then all of a sudden, your spirit gets more and more authority over your flesh. And all of a sudden, now you want to. 
Now you're excited to read your Bible. Now you're excited to spend time with God. You're excited to be in the presence of God because then you, you, your, your, your skin is, your flesh is like a, it's like a shell. And once you're, if you're all wrapped up in that cocoon, you can't feel anything on the outside. But as you break through that cocoon and you're able to get out your little butterfly head a little bit and you start to be able to feel the presence of God in your life and you're like, oh, there is something out here. Then everything changes for you. All of a sudden where you could never hear from God before, all of a sudden he starts speaking to you. All of a sudden you wake up in the middle of the night and, all, and a word that you have never thought of in your whole life is just in your brain. And you're like, well, that has to be God speaking to me because I certainly never would have thought of that. And your whole world begins to change. And all of a sudden you find yourself through the big forests on the Oregon Trail and you make it to the very end. And all of a sudden you find, wow, it actually is really prosperous here. I got a good piece of land. I got my 640 acres. My family is good. But you have to make the choice. You have to make the choice to make the journey, to get on the wagon, to go, to really live for Jesus, to really make a commitment. And whenever you feel that hate for the other people, whether it's in the church or the people around you, people that you just despise, or I know there are people in the church, like I said, I read the notes, there are people in the church who, who are sitting in the chairs and all you're doing is nitpicking everything that's being set up and done up here. That is a choice you're making. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you right now, no matter where you go, it's going to be the same. The church, church hoppers have a tendency to think, oh, well, the next church will be better. It's never better, right? It's never better. It's like getting divorced and married, marrying someone else and thinking that person's going to be better. They're going to have just another set of problems. You know, like it doesn't matter what you do. So we have to become, we have to understand to make a decision to commit. And I'm not trying to convince you to commit to this church. I'm just saying you have to commit to something. You have to commit to Jesus. You have to commit to be part of something and push through those hard times and keep growing. We have to learn to talk to each other. Pastor Mark and I were talking about this last night, talking about sometimes people get so angry and they choose that hate. And we have to learn how to deal with, th- with things that we're, having, we're struggling with. And I'm talking about like issues we have with other people. We need to learn, like, if you disagree with something, talk about it. Like, like talk about it in the sense of like, go to the person and be like, hey, why, ask questions. Like, why did you do that? Why did you say that? You know, why does Alan talk about poop all the time? I don't, I don't really get that. You know, which I, you, you all missed it because I talked about it with Ingrid because she was in a six by thing and all she had was a hole for a toilet and none of you caught that. But it was in there. I sneak it in. And you know, some of you may be like, I don't, I don't get why, why, why is that? Ask questions. Don't just get mad and just start talking about everything. I don't like this, blah, blah, blah. Ask questions. Like why? Uh, that's what someone taught me whenever, um, a long time ago, they said, if somebody loves you and they hurt you, instead of just getting mad and getting bitter at them, ask the question, this person loves me, would they really want to hurt me? Then why did they do what they did? Clearly it's not because they wanted to hurt me. There's some kind of misunderstanding here. So you need to ask those questions rather than just getting mad and, and talking bad about people. Ask the questions. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine. I already mentioned this, but I'm gonna wrap it up here with this. It says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Follow the word of God. The only heart we should be following is the heart of Jesus because Jesus cares about us. Jesus loves you. He did die on the cross for you and he cares 
the, he cares about the birds. I don't even care about birds, you know? God, Jesus cares about birds. My son is almost every day, he's like, can we get a bird? And I'm like, no, I'm not getting a bird. I want a bird. Birds are annoying and they keep pooping on my car. But Jesus does care about the birds. He makes sure that the birds have food. He takes care of the birds. So he definitely cares about you because you are worth so much more than a bazillion birds are worth. So I'm just gonna pray. I'm gonna leave you. I know this was kind of a heavy one this morning. Oh, did you want to say? Oh, yeah, go for it. made it to the promised land because their flesh wanted slavery still. And, and the Lord said this, what is it that you're willing to give me up for that would take you out of your promised land? And, and I just feel like there's a call this morning what is it that's taking you out of the problem? For the children of Israel, it was food. Think about it. They got bored with their food. You know, we think that we can live a lifestyle of sin and it have no effect on our eternity, and you're mistaken. It will keep you out of the promised land. The word is very clear about that. What is it that's keeping you from God? What sin have you fallen into that is keeping you from everything God has for you? What is it, what hardship has taken you out of faith? The children of Israel had it hard. You know, we can read about it and judge them for their attitudes and not making it in, but there are some of us in the room that when life gets hard, you look at Job. Everything was stripped from him, but at the end, he stood. Are you standing when hardships come? Or are you like the children of Israel, murmuring and complaining about how hard it is instead of how good our father is? So I don't want... Alan, just to pray, I want you to look at your heart because like he said, there are people in here that hate God. You will spend eternity in a hell that you can't get out of looking up at heaven, wishing you were there. We have to be a people that asks ourselves, what is it that keeps me out of the promised land? What am I willing to to give that up for. Some of us, it's food. God has said this, lay this down, and you keep picking it up, choosing it over him. Some of us, it's sex outside of marriage. You choose it instead of him. And when you choose it over him, it keeps you out of the promised land of heaven. That's the truth of our God. 
And nobody likes to hear it and nobody wants to talk about it, but it's the reality of where we're at. And there is a call in this house that is saying, what is it that is keeping you from what I have for you over here in the promised land? And if you're aware of it, are you willing to repent of it And repentance is not just, I'm sorry, and hope I don't do it again. Repentance is, that's it, I'm turning my back on it, and every day I will stay this way, marching into the forest, whatever it looks like towards him. If it's pornography, lay it down. If it's sex, lay it down. If there's a conviction on your life, lay it down. Choose him above it today. That's the call that is in the house this morning. And it's not just this house. God is coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. What is in your life? He has asked you to lay down and choose him over it. It doesn't have to be sex. Sometimes it's our grumbling and our murmuring against him. Baseline across, it could be sex or the murmuring. One of them will keep us out of the promises. What are you willing to do with the it he's revealed in your life this morning? Because he's saying, whom will you choose to serve? Your flesh or me? What is it that he's asked you to give up? And lay it down. Amen. All right, I'm not going to add anything to that because I think that's a great, great way to end. Lord Jesus, I know a lot of people in here right now, their hearts are, I choose you. And for those of you who are saying that in your heart, I'm not saying that you're getting saved right now, but you're, you're, you're choosing this day who you are going to continue to serve then, Lord, we, we together say, we choose you, Lord. We choose you with one heart in unity, even with our differences, even with disagreements, even whenever uh, some people irritate us or we just disagree with their doctrines, we still choose to stand together with you. And I know that there are other people who are still in here who are angry. They're angry at these words. They're angry at what I've shared this morning. They're, uh, they still hate you and they still hate the people around them. And for them, Lord, I ask you for mercy. For those people, God, I ask you for compassion. That you, person sitting there, that you would feel the love of the Lord in your life. And I want you to know, and I know the rest of us who love Jesus would agree, we forgive you for that. And we ask you to reconsider your ways and to follow Jesus with us because we want to do this as a family. Lord, I ask that you would bless every person here, that you would have mercy, Lord, that you would give us a day where we make decisions. Lord, that you wouldn't let us go to bed without making decisions today for for the right thing. Holy Spirit, that you would continue pursuing us relentlessly. And that you would continue drawing us with cords of love. 
and that we, Lord, would pull back, that we would, we would go forward, we'd go with you, Lord, that we'd pull on that rope and pull ourselves to you because we're so in love with you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Dubois Light and Life Church. We hope you're blessed by it. To hear more messages or get more information about Light and Life Church, please visit DuboisFMC.org or check us out on Facebook.